people learn somewhere along the way that being thin is really important and it's ideal. And they may even experience direct pressure to be thin. It can be bullying, it can be messages from the media. They might even be involved in activities where there is a focus on being thin, such as modelling or dance or other types of sports like that. Hello, I'm Dr Jodie Richardson and you're listening to Well Hello Anxiety, a podcast where we end the struggle with anxiety and build our toolkit of practical skills to thrive. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us for another episode. Today's guest, Dr Emma Black, is an amazing woman. She is a clinical psychologist as well as a supervising psychologist. And that what that means is that she supports interns and registrars to develop their own skills because it's a long road, there's a lot to learn, and having someone like Emma supporting them is very, very special. Dr Emma Black has worked in trauma services, public mental health, hospitals, education and private practice. And she's here today to help us to develop a better understanding of eating disorders. And this is the topic of her doctoral thesis. And what we know is that around two thirds of people with an eating disorder also have an anxiety disorder. So Emma, welcome so much. Thank you. Welcome. And I'm getting excited. Welcome. And thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your expertise. Thanks for having me, Jodie. This is take two, everyone. So we, uh, I had a bit of a tech issue that I could not resolve, which was the first uh, time in, in nearly a year of podcasting I couldn't resolve it. Uh, and Emma was so gracious to say, let's just revisit this a little bit down the track. So thanks again, Emma. Can you please tell us a little bit about what precipitates this kind of behaviour and these kinds of choices that people make when an eating disorder begins? Yeah, it's all about your relationship with your body. So people learn somewhere along the way that being thin is really important and it's ideal. Um, And they may even experience um, direct pressure to be thin. So it can be comments from other people. It can be bullying. It can be messages from the media. They might even be involved in activities where there is a focus on being thin, such as modelling or dance, gymnastics or other types of sports like that. That kind of relationship with your body starts it all off and then once people start dieting um, because they're unhappy with their body, it's not thin enough, it's not good enough, um, doesn't look the way that you think it should look, then that's when it all kind of starts to slide downhill. And one of the things that does happen is people have a lot of negative feelings, um, which can include anxiety and anxiety not only are they quite like um, comorbid or happen a lot with eating disorders, but they're actually a feature of eating disorders themselves. Um, so we'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about that soon. But the thing is, there are these really difficult feelings like being unhappy with your body, being anxious, having other painful emotions that you just don't quite know what to do with. And then that gets expressed as behaviours like not eating or over-exercising binge eating or purging. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, when I think as a parent, you know, from from that lens as to what we can do when when you talk about the messaging that people have uh, been on the receiving end of through the various channels, whether that's at home or at sport or at school or what's protective for 
people when it comes to eating disorders? What are, what, what are the types of conversations, language, uh, ideas around body image that we can do that can be protective against eating disorders? Yeah, so displaying acceptance for all body sizes and shapes is, is fantastic. Um, and there's been some work towards that in the media, which is also great, but even within, like, your family um, and even, like, what do you do when your kid is, like, pointing out, um, say, oh, you're in the shops, you're like, mum, that person's fat, like, because kids do this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, how do you kind of then manage that, right? Because that implies straight up like being fat is a bad thing. And so point, like how, how you address those conversations, pointing out things like we don't say that that's rude, that doesn't actually imply like acceptance for all different body shapes and sizes. So having um, some pre-prepared comments like, you know, bodies come in all shapes and sizes and we don't need to comment on them, that's actually helpful. So I think accepting body diversity and moving towards that body positivity, regardless of what your body looks like, because that doesn't determine your worth as a person, is really important. So how do you share that with your kids? I've always been of the mindset that it's, it's I'm in awe of what the body can do and it's about function and it's about health and, we, and, and just absolutely no references at all to weight. Uh, in the 12 and, well, I was going to say the 12 and 14 years I've been a parent. I've been a parent for 14 years. <laughs> but that's the age of our kids and not having scales. And I remember I remember seeing a, a meme many years ago and it was a little cartoon and it was a little girl talking to her friend in the bathroom, pointing at the scales and saying, don't ever stand on that, it'll make you cry. Oh, I know, I know. And, um, yes, we never had scales in our home growing up and we don't have scales, I don't weigh myself and, in fact, I am probably the heaviest I've ever been but I'm probably the healthiest I've ever been um, because of my exercise and muscle and things like that. So I think having a good understanding, like you say, about different body shapes and that, that like, like you say, bodies come in all sizes and all shapes and at the end of the day I think that that's a really powerful message for us to be um, sharing in our families. One of the things you said before was with respect to anxiety being something that's comorbid with eating disorders but also a feature. Could you please tell us more about that? Yeah, so once people develop disordered eating or have an eating disorder, basically they are riddled by anxiety because that's actually what drives those behaviours. So people can usually successfully avoid that anxiety if they're following the rules of their eating disorder. But when you don't, um, you can be highly anxious, even having panic attacks. And it can be to this phobic level where you kind of um, can't participate in your life very much. So what that actually looks like is people have strong fears of certain foods. They can have good foods or bad foods, safe foods or unsafe foods. And it can be debilitating because if they are put in a situation where they might, say, even have a bite of an unsafe or a feared food or a bad food uh, that can trigger high distress, high anxiety, panic. Um, and for some people, like even just having one bite of a feared food can then trigger a binge eat as well, which has a lot of distress associated with that. So the anxiety is about food and people develop food rules to help them manage the anxiety People get really anxious about their weight, that number on their scales. They get really anxious about what their 
body looks like. So even with anorexia, one of the symptoms of that is an intense fear of gaining weight. So that kind of steps are taken at all costs to avoid weight gain. People become really anxious about breaking rules. And while I talked about food rules, like good foods and bad foods, there are rules there about other things as well, like exercise, how much you exercise, um, and even like what you kind of can do or how you display your body. So um, people become really unhappy about their body and really anxious about what it looks like. So if you're not feeling good in your body, to think about going out and socialising can bring on high anxiety and distress. So people often avoid that when they're having a bad body day. People also have anxiety about going blank for a moment. Oh, um, it's okay. It's so okay. It's about it. food. Yeah. It's about your body. It's about fear of gaining weight. Oh, and that's the other thing. It's often people are often really anxious to eat in front of other people and that's something that's often avoided regardless of what the eating disorder is. So food can kind of become this hidden, isolating thing. And another thing that happens is that people become really afraid of being judged by other people, judged for their body, judged for what they eat. And so that drives a lot of avoidance as well. So you don't socialise as much. Or um, you hide your body. So you don't go swimming, you don't go to the beach, you cover up. Um, So it's another thing too that people get really anxious about. Sorry, it slipped my mind. It's okay. It'll come back. And if it doesn't, that's okay. You've shared so much in the way of insights for us. And I, I picture, I picture it, you know, in my mind, I'm picturing a young lady who's in really baggy clothes. And my interpretation of that was she's hiding her thinness so other people don't ask her about it. But in fact, I realise that that interpretation might be incorrect. What, What's what's that about? Because it's a, it seems to be a common uh, theme uh, that the clothing is big and baggy. And what, what's the purpose of that kind of dressing? Well, I guess the the probably the place I'd start is there's only a small group of people with eating disorders who have like really thin bodies, and most people actually have a normal body weight or even are in a larger body. Um, so yeah, like wearing probably clothes that aren't form fitting that does happen if you're at like a lower body weight but it also happens when you're in the normal or typical body weight range or a higher body weight range so wearing something that's really form fitting um happens for for people in all different body sizes just because they have an eating disorder yes and what are the different types of eating disorder so yeah anorexia is probably the one that's like most well represented in the media um but we also have uh bulimia which is where your self-worth gets really um influenced by what your body looks like and usually there's or there's binge eating um which is like losing control over food and eating a large amount really quickly feeling uncomfortably full or sick then there's usually some steps taken to like compensate for the binge eating and that might be like not eating much the next day that might be vomiting or purging or it might even be like going to the gym a lot just to like offset um the the binge eating 
Um, and so people who have bulimia are typically in a normal body weight range or they might um, have a larger body. But there's also binge eating disorder, which is um, having regular regular losses of control over your eating where you binge eat um, regularly at least once a week for a number of months. And so probably the most common ones or the most well-known ones are, are anorexia, which is where you have a low body weight fear of gaining weight and behaviours like restricting, not eating much, dieting, binging or purging. Then there is the bulimia and binge eating disorder, but also we have other diagnoses as well. So people might have a fairly typical eating pattern but be doing behaviours that are unhelpful like vomiting after a typical meal or using a lot of laxatives and so really kind of as long as there's any kind of disturbance in your eating or something that causes you a lot of distress or causes difficulty in your life, like you find it hard to socialise because you're afraid of getting caught to eat out with your friends, then you can actually uh, be looked at getting diagnosed with an eating disorder. But a diagnosis isn't the be-all and end-all. Sometimes people have distress over stuff that wouldn't meet criteria for a a diagnosis. Yes, and that's the thing, isn't it, that I know when we talk about anxiety uh, and anxiety disorder being something that's frequent, extreme, getting in the way of daily functioning, And but there there can be, it's a continuum, isn't it, when it comes to these things. It's People can be, you know, everyone experiences anxiety, but, yeah, just, just because you don't meet the clinical guidelines uh, of diagnosis, like you say, I think that's really important that you've you've shared that with us. What advice would you give to someone who cares for someone with an eating disorder? Yeah, so it is really hard to kind of watch this happen to someone that you care about. Um, so it is it's a real challenge. So well done for, for persisting because it can be hard to just get someone through the door to help, to even want to get help, to be open to having that conversation with you. Sometimes people just deny it flat out because they're not interested in in or not up to having a difficult conversation. So where can you start? Um, well, there's a lot of great resources around. I think the Butterfly Foundation is a fantastic one. Uh, calling their helpline is, is a great place to kind of get this advice directly. If someone has talked to you and is open to seeking help, then it would really be starting with your family GP. Um, and not all GPs are across like eating disorders or have much expertise or knowledge about them. So if you kind of don't get the response or help that you need first time, like don't give up, keep trying. There are also support groups for family members caring for someone who has an eating disorder. They're run from a number of different organisations, but again, the Butterfly Foundation could give a lot of advice about that. Mm. I remember ringing the Butterfly Foundation many, many years ago uh, when our daughter was just starting to notice body shapes and sizes and uh, there there was an inwardly focused kind of perspective there for just a short period of time and, oh, goodness, and I thought oh, I'm just going to straight up get some advice because I'd really like to handle this in the in the best way that I can. And there was there was no, I wasn't worried, but it was just the first kind of conversations around these things. I think this first awareness of the differences and, and this, you know, 
self-reflection. And one of the things that I said to the woman who was amazing on the phone was I'd said to our daughter, I said, look, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. Everyone's got a different body. You know, everyone looks different and, and it's about what we can do. And, you know, and I genuinely, I genuinely look at my body as it changes. I'm 50, not next year, the year after. And, and I, I keep very fit. But I just think, you know what, I'm so lucky to have strong legs that I can run around and do all sorts of things with. And I can, you know, I'm, I'm thankful and grateful for the body, even though it, even, even though it is changing. Um, and that's my genuine, that's my, like, my genuine perspective. And she said to me that by saying to our daughter that I'm not perfect implied that somebody else might be. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's so easy to say the wrong thing in a well-meaning way without good advice and without getting this kind of help and this kind of support. And and I realised, oh, straight away, yes, that there are different ways that we can talk about it. And and the way that we parent our own kids is a product of how we were parented as well and what was said to us and what we learned. And so um, I love that there are these resources available now for us to turn to and, and for us to have conversations like this. Um, so what, what would you have said in my shoes uh, to a young person who's starting to notice or maybe be even a little bit critical of themselves? What would you say? What would you recommend that we say as parents well my first step would actually be curiosity like where does that come from where have you heard that um and just sort of questioning where those statements have actually yeah come from and sometimes people don't know sometimes they're too young to know but actually um not taking that as as fact and starting to question is really important what you get back is then kind of how you can respond but, um, yeah, if someone is saying to you, well, I don't know, it's just the way I feel, then, then having a gentle discussion about, well, you know, people can feel all different types of things about their bodies and maybe right now you're not feeling so good about your body, but when have you felt good in your body and kind of, again, continuing to question and explore, like, all kind of sides of the coin? Um, because when, like, when we're dismissive, like, when you kind of say to to a young woman or a child developing into a woman, no, don't think that way or you'll be fine when you kind of just um, go, you look perfect as you are, what are you talking about? When you're dismissive, <laughs> it actually is really unhelpful. So gently exploring if possible. And it's a big ask for a parent because you have to self-regulate, right, your own reactions to, oh, my God, my daughter is not happy with her body and where did this come from? to kind of just jump into their shoes but even for a few minutes you can get some important information that might kind of then guide what you do. Yes and it's that catastrophic thinking isn't it and that's where I was I was because I live with an anxiety disorder and I'm very I, I manage it well but I'm human like everyone else and I in that in that moment that's exactly where my head went where could this lead to and I felt a pressing need to get this you know get this right, which, you know, we right is different under different circumstances with different families, but I just felt this need to be more equipped to kind of handle what was what was happening in these conversations. And I just love, I just love your question about curiosity. I, I remember my mum saying to me, she she's amazing, my mum, a brilliant support. And she's she's given me a couple of really key pieces of advice as a parent over the years. Um 
And one is don't make idle threats. <laughs> don't make which, which you know, this was back when they were little babies. I don't make threats at all, but don't 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 say you're going to do something and then not not follow through. I think was a general uh, meaning there. And the other one was ask ask a question like you said about where something's coming from. And she shared the the funny story of the little kid that asked their parent what sex was. And the mum didn't ask, oh, where, where's that question coming from? Tell, tell me why you're asking me this or, you know, where have you heard that word or, um, and just launched into this big, you know, explanation and then said why. And he said, oh, because Dad said he'll be back in a couple of sex. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and I've always remembered that. And so, yeah, I just, it was such good advice and it's a funny little story but, um, yeah, that leading with curiosity and that idea about whew, regulating ourselves and whether or not we're supporting a partner, supporting a child, supporting a friend, that ability to take that little space, isn't it, in between the the learning of the news or the, the insight into what's happening with someone we care about and then responding. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that space and how you know, a person who's highly triggered, of course, because they're caring for somebody with a uh, an eating disorder, how they can, what they can do to look after themselves so that they're in a better place to respond rather than kind of react when having these conversations. Yeah, yeah. So probably having good support for yourself in general will be helpful. And also remembering that carers need care too. So I guess I'm kind of talking about protective stuff, like making sure you do take time for you, have creating that space for yourself and that self-care will actually give you more resources to be able to respond rather than just react or catastrophize. But when you kind of do get caught on the fly and someone asks you a confronting question and you're feeling all the feelings, um, <clears throat> that kind of wanting to be curious, it can just fly out the door and, and the knee jerk can happen. And so the best thing you can do in those moments when you're feeling those big feelings yourself is actually to like give yourself a time out in the kindest possible way because unless there's an acute crisis, nothing has to be dealt with then and there. It's okay to go, look, you know, that's a really big question. Um, can you just give me a few minutes to, to come back and we'll have a discussion about it? Or, you know, we're running out the door for school. Uh, I really want to do this conversation justice. It's important to me. I know it's important to you. So can we actually like make a time like this evening to have a good conversation about it? So you can put things in place to give yourself more space so you have more resources to be able to, to be curious rather than just courting your own feelings. Oh, that's such a beautiful and powerful answer because, yeah, I think it can often feel like, oh, I have to deal with this here in the moment and that it's it, it can be inconvenient, it can be overwhelming, it can be just purely, just completely the wrong time. So going back to... Uh, supporting somebody with an eating disorder you've you've talked about so beautifully about those those first steps to seeking that help and getting those insights from the GP and I was going to say too I know at our GP clinic that there there are G, as there always are and you you mentioned before some GPs have specialties in different areas so you can always ring the clinic and say I, I'd like to talk to someone about this can you recommend someone 
Um, and those forums are no doubt good places to get some advice uh, in your local area. But when it comes to a person struggling with an eating disorder, what kind of treatment or what, what helps them to start to progress back towards better health? Well, I think just also recognising that's a massive step to even wind up in treatment or to wind up um, getting help or therapy because there's so many hurdles to be bridged then um, to even get to that point because people are often not quite ready to change or not quite wanting to change. So that is massive in itself if you like have an eating disorder or your young person has an eating disorder and you can actually get them through the door of the GP in the first place. Amazing. And then from there, um, well, I guess the GP can kind of open up the pathways because it can actually be different depending on what your symptoms and difficulties um, actually are. So, look, medical monitoring becomes really important because eating disorders take such a toll on the body uh, and do cause a lot of physical damage, particularly over time. So getting good medical like um, help and monitoring is key. From there, um, if someone is actually kind of moving, say, into therapy, um, we know that having a treatment team is actually um, best for people. So it's not just like seeing a psychologist or a therapist. Usually you need a multidisciplinary approach for the best outcomes. Uh, so that can be like the medical input. It can be seeing a psychologist. It can be seeing a dietitian. It can also be seeing a psychiatrist too. And sometimes people wind up doing that through the public system. Sometimes they wind up doing that through the private system. Sometimes they kind of bounce back and forth between all different systems, whether that's like working on getting the help in the community. Sometimes people do need to have hospital stays at times, depending on how severe um, or responsive uh, the eating disorder is. So it's kind of, it's, it can be all over the place because recovery isn't linear. So it's just depending on what's happening for someone at the time. When it comes to the anxiety, the anxious thinking and all of the physiology that comes with the anxiety in combination with the eating disorder, what sort of suggestions do you have for somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder to help them with that side of their health? Well, it's about recognising that the anxiety um, can directly influence the symptoms of your eating disorder. So like a symptom of anxiety is loss of appetite. And also if you have a lot of that restless agitation, you probably feel like you need to go exercise in order to manage that state. Um, so recognising that it will kind of um, make your eating disorder worse. So it is a really important question, like how do you manage this then? And I think, um, well, there's a number of different ways that people do manage anxiety um, that can be done through uh, getting like, psych like psychology help. People can also look at um, medication for anxiety as well, which can actually just take the edge off enough for you to kind of see that um, fear not feel as distressed and therefore um, reduce the um, severity or impact on your eating disorder. But it's sort of it's really hard to kind of give general advice about that because it's kind of it's different for different people and um, people get really anxious over some different things. 
Um, but I think probably some key ways you can kind of work on that is recognise that the anxiety is there and also consider like how you self-regulate that. So people usually turn to the disordered eating to help regulate that, like not eating, overeating or exercising. But are there any other options? So people um, who manage anxiety and don't have an eating disorder can look at doing things like relaxation skills, like breathing exercises, like even spending time with someone that they care about and talking about their feelings because that, that accessing of support and that sharing of the anxiety often helps bring it down. So um, I guess considering um, things outside of your eating disorder to help you um, manage that. And I feel like this is also a really good time to put in um, – to put in here there's some really great books on recovering from eating disorders that are so helpful because it's really hard to do on your own and without help because it, once you get an eating disorder particularly if anxiety is there it actually you get stuck in like this vicious loop that's really hard to get out of because you're anxious so you don't eat certain foods or you over exercise but when you do that it maintains the anxiety so you get stuck but some way, starting points to help you kind of get educated and break out of these loops. Um, two fantastic books I recommend to all my clients. One is Overcoming Binge Eating by Christopher Fairburn. And this was actually written by the, um, by the guy who invented a really helpful treatment for eating disorders. So he's like really um, well resourced in this area and an expert. And then another one is Eight Keys to Recovering from an Eating Disorder, which was written by Carolyn Coston and Gwen Schubert. And both of those women are actually therapists who treat eating disorders, but they both have a lived experience of it themselves. So again, they really know what they're talking about. Oh, they're amazing resources. And I'll include those in the notes for the episode, which you can find on my website, under the podcast tab and scroll to the episode or you can uh, go straight to your um, podcasting platform and those notes will be accompanying each episode. So thank you so much for that. There's, there is a lot of help available and what, is, what are some of the barriers that people face to reaching out for help? Yeah, so people usually like suffer in silence with an eating disorder. They wind up quite isolated. They don't talk to other people. It's one of those hidden disorders. So to even think about telling someone, like including a health professional, that you have one um, or are struggling with your eating is massive in the first place. Um, <clears throat> so that will cause you anxiety, right? Simply talking about that you have this or are struggling with something to do with your body or eating. Um, and so that's a massive step to, to overcome. Other barriers to help seeking are that people aren't always wanting to change or ready to change, even if they have periods of high distress. So sometimes you can hit this like crisis point where you're like, yes, I want to seek help. You make an appointment with your doctor or with a therapist or a dietitian or someone else. And then by the time you get there, you're like, no, I don't really want to be here. So it can kind of be this back and forth. I would really encourage anyone who makes an appointment and then has doubts about whether they should even go to just go anyway. Sometimes you might be surprised by the feedback. It's one of those things I think to be mindful of is that sometimes you can feel a sense of hope just by making a decision, but then you go and seek the help and realise that 
it's painful to talk about. It's uncomfortable. It's There can be shame involved, I imagine, when it comes to eating disorders. And my, you know, my heart goes out to anyone who's struggling with this and to families who are living with this in their homes. And just, I think, to have an understanding that there there is help available, that any type of change is hard, no matter what it is that we're trying to do in our lives, but just to be guided by the fact that the, the help can make such a powerful difference to the way that you live day to day, but it's just going to take a little bit of time. It's it's going to be uncomfortable and it's not always going to be easy, but to keep that that kind of big picture in mind that it's it's worthwhile and anything that's meaningful in life brings challenges, doesn't it? Anything, whether it's doing something out of your comfort zone, you know, asking somebody on a date or going for a new job or uh, asking asking for help, you know, those things that are important um, can can be challenging. So I think it's nice to kind of preempt that. So it's not it's not a surprise, but people go forward with a willingness to go. Look, I know, I know that it's worthwhile persevering through this support, this seeking of support, uh, because the outcomes uh, will make life so different but uh, it's there's a period in between where it's going to be it's going to be a bit tricky yeah and I think the thing that's really beautiful to bear in mind and and gives people hope is that the research is really clear that when you undertake an evidence-based treatment and you have a good team like recovery can happen and it does happen more than people think so like there is every reason to be hopeful and the other part too that gets people really anxious is like, well, actually, what does your life look like? What does my life look like without an eating disorder? So that becomes a really scary thing. And sometimes like for some people, it's not about like getting rid of the eating disorder altogether. It's about building a better life, like one that's less distressing and one that we have more joy and more positive feelings in, even if you still have some disordered eating behaviours. And I think that that is all worth striving for. So it's kind of just pushing through or persisting through that anxiety and distress to like have a conversation and to seek help can actually open up those opportunities for a much better life. Oh, it can, it can. And it's so great that you raised this. I was recently talking with Sarah Rusbatch. We met for lunch when I was in Perth. She did an episode with me about grey area drinking. And one of the things that she was talking about with me over lunch is that when alcohol is something that people choose to take out of their life or to remove from their lifestyle, that something else can often take its place and and she finds that a lot of the time that's sugar and so i think this awareness that that with with the help and the support of a team of people who are experienced that not only will it be about helping you with your distress and with the choices and the behaviors uh that are around the eating disorder but other ways that you can enrich your life and move back into the things that you've maybe left behind because if you've not been socialising or if you've been uh, not been working or that those are steps that will be, you'll be supported to take so that this your life can become rich again and, uh, like you say, you can experience more joy, more connection, more fun and uh, just be better equipped to make 
all of the changes that are required but over a period of time and slowly. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, getting educated, getting support and help is really key, like we've talked about. And I probably also would love to throw in here as well, like when they've done research with people who have lived experiences of both disordered eating and recovery, like one of the things that people often talk about is that yoga's been really helpful in recovering. And so, it is about using your judgment because if you're at a really low body weight, throwing in a type of exercise is not helpful. But the reason why yoga can be so beneficial is about connecting with your body and doing that in a non-judgmental way, not hating on your body, but but using it and experiencing it. And that can be quite new to people who are used to um, potentially like being quite critical of their bodies, beating up on it or kind of driving it to exhaustion uh, and not listening to your body. And so yoga kind of is about, it is about listening to your body and having a different relationship with it. So that's probably another thing that people can bear in mind that can be helpful to try. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and for some that could mean even just sometimes here at home when I need to settle my nervous system, I'll do, I'll put on a YouTube video of a, sun salutation and I'm not a yogi but I'll just follow follow the movements and just slowly and without you know overtaxing myself physically just to kind of become more present move shift out of a seat where I've been podcasting or writing or or reading and and so those kinds of options are open to people uh in in those ways in in little doses at home aren't they right through to beautiful experiences in classes and the classes are so special because of that teaching and that learning that accompanies the actual movement and so um yeah yoga is so powerful I'm really really thrilled that you've raised that and it's um it's that non non-attachment isn't it that non-judgmental point of view it's very very special I'm feeling so calm our dog's just come over He's just sitting next to me here and I just realise how much I'm relaxing just patting him. So that's another beautiful thing, isn't it, when anxiety is high and distress is high is that our animals can make such a difference for us, can't they? For sure, yep. And that's also about, you know, your relationships, your quality of life, right, and getting that joy from connection. That's right. So what else would you like for listeners to know around eating disorders from, you know, you've got so much experience in terms of your doctoral thesis and your research. You've got so much experience, obviously, uh, as a clinician and a supervisor. So are there any sort of uh, other parting suggestions, ideas, insights that you'd, you'd really love to share with us today? I think it's just the importance of trying to take care of your body in a new way. Um, because people often struggle with that. And so when I see people um, at in my clinic um, to work on eating disorders, often they're not drinking much water. Um, food is, is quite a difficult um, thing, of course. But sometimes it's just those really small steps, like staying hydrated can actually really offset some of the um, harmful things that happen to your body. Um, and so, yep, simple steps to try and take care of your body if if you can cope with that, I suppose, like trying yes. to drink enough water, trying to get get rest, um, get enough rest and trying to 
listen to your body, which is a big thing I'm saying. And I'm like, I'm probably saying to someone who's further down the track, I suppose, than the early stages of help seeking. But these are probably the things that reduce some of the medical risks um, that are posed to, to your physical health by an eating disorder. So I guess the, the key point is getting involved with a good medical practitioner is actually really important. Yes. Yeah, a, a really wonderful GP is, oh, they're priceless. And one of the things that I'll, <clears throat> I'll often suggest is that if you are going to see your GP around your mental health or around the mental health of a loved one, uh, that making a double appointment is, a, is often a good idea, isn't it? Because sometimes those appointments can feel so rushed and if people don't get to the GP often, um, you know, then it, there can be a bit of catching up. Um, one of the things I will also recommend is making a few notes and, and jotting down a, a few key uh, really important things that you'd like to say so that because the stress of sharing with a GP and, and opening that door can be enough to kind of make it really hard to think and recall and, and articulate, can't it? Yeah, for sure. Yes, yes. Um, Emma, your expertise is runs so deep and your compassion is so evident in you know this forum we can see each other other people can't obviously uh see Dr Emma but I I know how passionate you are about your work and for for you to be able to spend this time with me on a take two and to be able to really uh support our listeners to understand more about eating disorders in general and really answer a lot of our questions is something that I'm really grateful for but where can people find you and connect with you Oh, yep. So my website is townsvillepsychologist.com.au. It's a bit tricky because I'm not taking new clients. Um, So it's probably um, if people want to get information, I've got some blogs there about um, disordered eating, like why they start, why they continue, what they can look like. Um, So, so yeah, I'm townsvillepsychologist.com.au. Oh, fantastic. And Whilst you might not be taking new patients at the time of recording, is it possible that that you will open up to new patients at some stage? Yeah, so that's likely to happen um, towards the end of this year in 2022. Uh, Are there any associations that people could reach out to to be directed to a psychologist who might be have more expertise in this particular area? Yeah. So the Butterfly Foundation has a referral network and they even include like dietitian, psychologists and GPs, which is fantastic. Um, and then there's also other organisations like Inside Out, the Inside Out Institute, um, Queensland Eating Disorder Service. They also have clinicians there. There's a number of different private practices um, around Australia that have a focus on eating disorders. So Google is a great resource in itself. And so looking for someone who not only um, has an interest in eating disorders um, but has experience in it, um, looking for the treatment model um, will be important because we know that eating disorders generally um, respond best when someone uses an evidence-based treatment developed specifically for eating disorders Um, So don't be afraid to ask the questions. Like if you get sent to someone new and you're like, can you actually help me? What do you offer? What is your experience? What's your treatment model? I think these are all really important questions. Oh, they're such important questions. And we ask 
dozens of questions when we're buying a car or we're even, you know, thinking about a, a new phone or we're, you know, we're going to a restaurant. You know, we ask questions and it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hurdle. It feels like it can be a hurdle, but it shows your investment in your treatment and, and these things can cost money as well and they take time. And so really maximising and optimising the time that you spend with the person that is there to support you is, is really important. And, and if you don't feel comfortable asking in person, you could certainly send an email uh, or you could get somebody who cares about you to ask on your behalf. And so I love that you've brought that to our attention. It's, this is just such a joy of the podcast because the insights that you have uh, and that you've been able to share will make such a powerful difference for people no matter where they are on their journey with uh, with these kinds of challenges. And um, I'm so grateful for your time, Emma. Um, Dr Emma Black, thank you for being with us here today. It's just been uh, a really fantastic conversation, very, very helpful. Thanks, Jodie. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And we will be back again next week. New episodes drop every single Wednesday without fail and we're approaching at this point we're approaching uh a full year of weekly podcasting which is pretty cool so thanks for your support thanks for all your lovely messages and i'll see you next week bye thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode if you enjoyed it please subscribe and leave a review to keep the conversation going i'd love you to join me over on instagram you'll find me at dr jody richardson also, if you'd like a copy of my free five-day mini email course, Calm Your Anxious Brain, then jump over to my website, drjodyrichardson.com, and you can sign up down the bottom. I've really enjoyed having your company. Thanks so much. See you next time.